Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is William M. Arkin. And he published a book in April of 2021. The title of the book is The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. And Mr. Arkin is one of America's premier military experts. His investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. And has won, he has won many awards. He served as an NBC News analyst and reporter for 30 years and is the best-selling author of more than a dozen books. Mr. Arkin served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the U.S. Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. But this is not his only book that he published in 2021. He also published History in One Act, a novel of 9-11, published in June 2021. And on that day, the definitive timeline of 9-11 on August 17th, 2021, but he's also published some other titles. Uh, one is Unmanned Drones, Data, and the Illusion of a Perfect Warfare, 2015. American Coup, How a Terrified Government is Destroying the Constitution, 2013. Operation Iraqi Freedom, The Inside Story, published 2013. Also Top Secret America, The Rise of the New American Security State, 2011. Divining Victory, Air Power in the 2006 israel Hezbollah War, 2011. And then also code names deciphering U.S. military plans, programs, and operations in the 9/11 world from 2005. He's also published in, or written or been involved in the writing of data books from on military subjects, a variety of different uh, subjects. But uh, again, we're going to talk about this book that he just published, 2021. Title again is "The Generals Have No Clothes." So, Mr. Arkin, are you there? Thank you very much for having me on. All right. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not know your background, can you talk about uh, your, you have a pretty very long, lengthy CV. You go all the way back to, I think, the 70s in Berlin. Can you talk about uh, this many decades long interest in the, the military affairs in the U.S. and what led you to write The Generals Have No Clothes? Well, I'd say I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. I never had to ask one day of my life what it was that I wanted to do. Uh, I joined the Army at the age of 18 and was uh, shipped to Berlin at the height of the Cold War in the middle of all of the espionage and uh, uh, crises that was uh, still going on in Berlin. And then um, in addition to that, sort of at the front lines of the new technologies of intelligence collection, 
uh, after the army, I, I, I moved to Washington, D.C. and worked for a bunch of different think tanks, uh, started doing journalism in the early 80s, uh, wrote a column for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists for a long time, and uh, really followed nuclear weapons closely until the end of the Cold War. And then, you know, Saddam Hussein invaded it, 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 Kuwait in 1990. And I shifted my attention to conventional warfare, and I realized that I knew nothing. I knew nothing about it, really. It was funny. I knew more about the Soviet military than I did about the American military. And uh, uh, I ended up going to Iraq with a first American to a military expert to go inside Iraq after Desert Storm. And uh, then doing these on-the-ground investigations of warfare, uh, subsequently in Israel, Lebanon, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, in Eritrea and Ethiopia, uh, in Kosovo, uh, I kind of became an expert on air power and, and, and the conduct of war, uh, served as a as a consultant to the Air Force and started into journalism seriously in 1998. Uh, and, uh, you know, still continue to write for Newsweek. Uh, mostly I'm a cover story kind of guy, I write big stories, but, uh, but books are my passion. And uh, I've written uh, more than a dozen. And, uh, you know, I've watched the book world change and in, in, in my almost 40 years of writing books and uh, uh, but I still love I love a book I love the I love the notion of of uh, discovering a subject and uh, letting the research and the investigation take you wherever it takes you and uh, you know I have a point of view I I, I definitely am uh, anti-war but then again I mean the top general in the Pentagon will say the same thing I'm anti-war as well uh, but I am a specialist on the behavior and operations of the U.S. government that's my real passion and that's what I've focused on over many years and you talk about in the context of our endless wars you talk about this in the intro about a deeply entrenched but also invisible or unrealized system. Can you talk about the background of what's happening in the U.S. Uh, as far as it's uh, what's continuing this war that's really been at least supposedly ended in Afghanistan as one example uh, recently, but can you talk about the, the entrenched system that facilitates warfare? Well, so, you know, the United States has always been uh, present in, in parts of the Middle East and Africa uh, in some way, uh, either small naval bases or other bases. And we forget perhaps that after Desert Storm in 1991, the U.S. stayed in the Middle East, uh, stayed to enforce the Iraqi no-fly zones. It stayed to uh, continue to uh, picket Saddam Hussein over a decade and so when 9-11 came along, uh, there much of the infrastructure of, uh, of what would become the global war on terror already existed sort of with its epicenter in the Gulf states and Kuwait, uh, and then slowly expanded, uh, building out a global network of intelligence collection, of communications, of space, 
that was the the real workhorse, if you will, of uh, of of perpetual war, uh, which is to say that there's no other country on the planet that has a global network like the United States. There's no other country on the planet that has the capacity to move and operate anywhere on the planet. And, uh, you know, Afghanistan was a very remote place where we went to war in October 2001. And uh, in order to operate in Afghanistan, not only did we build an infrastructure there, but we had to build uh, the stepping stones to that infrastructure to connect it back to the United States. And in those days, in a country that didn't have a working uh, telecommunication system, you know, a big part of uh, building up American capacity was uh, building a cell phone system that could then link everybody at least together uh, and then and then even on top of that, uh, cell phone systems in the sky, which we created, uh, which were able to uh, help people communicate back to the mothership, which was located in the tiny Gulf state of gutter, but really uh, back to the, uh, you know, the information temple at uh, Fort Meade, Maryland, where NSA is, and to the Pentagon, and to then other intelligence collection stations and drone operating stations, which existed all around the United States. And at one time in both Iraq and Afghanistan, really there were more people fighting the war in places like Fort Meade and Fort Gordon, Georgia, at, uh, uh, in San Antonio, Texas, and in other small outposts. There were more people actually contributing to the targeting and to the intelligence analysis and even to the planning and operations, then there were boots on the ground. And then boots on the ground after the Iraq surge in 2008 became very unpopular. And so the, the, the shift of the American military was to find a way to continue to prosecute the war on terrorism with the minimum of boots on the ground. And that meant that it, it had to be a, a giant wedge uh, the, a small number of people on the ground backed up by uh, tens, hundreds, and thousands, and even tens of thousands of uh, people providing them with information, providing them with direction, providing them with all of what they needed. And so by the time the United States announced its withdrawal from Afghanistan, we had 2,500 troops on the ground. Uh, by the time the United States w withdrew from Iraq in 2011, uh, we had about 10,000 troops on the ground. It's a, it's a tiny number when you think about warfare. And, um, and that had also expanded to having uh, various stepping stones in everywhere from Niger and in West Africa uh, to, uh, to uh, Somalia, to Yemen, uh, even into the Philippines. And these are the real forgotten wars because despite the Biden administration's announcement that we're now done with Afghanistan and, and ending our longest war. The truth of the matter is uh, that the U.S. military and the CIA and black special operations units uh, continue to operate in 20 other countries around the world. And the United States uh, could be bombing or could be uh, mounting drone attacks or lethal strikes in uh 10 countries every right. day. 
Right, you said that there's special forces in like almost 90 countries, so the 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 huge physical superstructure of the United States is ever present almost worldwide. It is, and even today we will see the continuation of operations against ISIS in Afghanistan, against Al-Qaeda, and that's all facilitated by this global network, but the forces that actually are flown, uh, let's say the drone that uh, struck the ISIS planners uh, in Afghanistan, uh, that drone likely flew out of the Gulf, out of the Persian Gulf. Uh, so it, it flew hundreds of miles uh, to, to be over Afghanistan, but we've built up that capacity over decades now. And uh, so there are drone bases in Djibouti, there are drone bases in the Gulf states, there are drone bases in Niger, and these as well as uh, special operations, uh, uh, small forward operating bases, some of them very secret in places like Uzbekistan and Pakistan and other places. Uh, they uh, facilitate this endless war and they facilitate the global reach, which will allow the United States to continue to operate in Afghanistan, even though we have no troops on the ground. Right. And it's pretty incredible. And even you're talking about the drones, you mentioned that even the, the minimizing the soldier deaths has facilitated the continuation of the perpetual war, correct? Uh, yes, in the sense that, well, the United States has always been technologically uh, uh, heavy. And, um, and, and so I don't, I don't think other than the small time period of 2003, when the U U.S. sought to destroy Saddam's army and depose him, which was successful. I mean, the, we forget that the 2003 war was 21 days and, uh, you know, that George Bush ran out there and said mission accomplished. And then what followed was another decade of, uh, of fighting. Um, but nobody really ever had the, uh, the stomach for uh, lots of tr troops on the ground. Uh, I think in, it, at the height, uh, the United States probably had no more than 150,000 troops on the ground in uh, Iraq. And at the height, uh, the United States probably had no more than 60,000 troops on the ground in, in Afghanistan. So uh, we're not talking about the giant mobilizations that were characteristic of World War II or Korea or even Vietnam, we're, we're really talking about a technologically driven conflict in which the troops on the ground were often as much symbolic as they were important elements of the fight. Right. And you actually kind of talk about, I learned a new phrase from your book, tooth to nail ratio. So you have less people, but there's just this huge background, 85% or you know, 80% of the size is all of this massive system facilitating conflict. And I thought that was really interesting that, I mean, you, you use an example of this, this program that took place um, where the National Guard, the 155th was sent to Kuwait, Spartan Shield, but just this massive capacity to move manpower and deployment of tanks and all this stuff all around the world. Can you talk about how that's constantly happening in the U.S. military? Well, the tooth to tail ratio uh, is is something that has always been uh, a, a present element, uh, both because 
there's a balance between military people and civilians and today private contractors. Uh, and then second, uh, the, the, the number of actual guys who are trigger pullers, who are, who are fi fighting, uh, as opposed to those who are in support roles, uh, has shifted more and more towards support. So let's just take down, for instance, go back to the Vietnam War. Uh, the ratio of, uh, of fighters to support was probably one to one. And today it's, it's more on the, uh, uh, you know, somewhere around, as you said, 85%. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, for every 10 soldiers that are on the ground, eight, eight of them are in support roles. Uh, uh, and, and for every, uh, you know, hundred soldiers on the ground, there are 800 people behind them. So, uh, this, this ratio has, uh, has continued to grow and, and, and in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, obviously contractors became incredibly important and, uh, you know, a, a large part of the number of Americans who were present in Afghanistan at, during this withdrawal over the last three weeks. Uh, were contractors, uh, civilians who had uh, volunteered to go over there. Obviously, they work for companies that are contracted to do various functions, everything from operating the air conditioning systems on bases to being the basic intelligence analysts of the system. So, it, you know, even saying boots on the ground is misleading today because so much of what's on the ground is contractors. And... Um, and the ratio of contractors to soldiers, especially in remote locations, is, becomes greater and greater. So the, the American way of war has shifted towards individual targeting, towards killing people uh, in onesies and twosies with drones and special operations units. And the American arithmetic of war has shifted with as many people in support roles as, as are um, people who are doing the actual fighting on the ground, and then a ratio of you know one to ten in terms of every soldier that's out there. There are ten people back behind that soldier. So just think about it when you know when you have twenty five hundred people on the ground in Afghanistan. There's probably somewhere on the uh, in the area of twenty five thousand people supporting them behind. Right, and can you also kind of address how the national security establishment kind of maintains or facilitates the perpetual war over administrations? Well, the most important point to make, I guess, also in the context of Afghanistan today is secrecy. I mean, Joe Biden can announce that the war is over in Afghanistan when it's not. Uh, Joe Biden can announce that everybody has been withdrawn when it's not even clear that that's true. Uh, Joe Biden can announce that, uh, you know, he's ending the endless wars when we're in, a, in, in 20 other countries uh, actively fighting today. Uh, it's, it, it just seems to me like secrecy has facilitated not only uh, the, the, the deception of the American government about, uh, uh, you know, where we're fighting and, and where we're engaged, but also at the same time, in, in a funny way, uh, you know, secrecy, uh, uh, it, it creates the crises that we uh, then have to uh, clean up after. So in Afghanistan, you know, probably 
in the last year, the estimate of the number of Americans on the ground in terms of uh, contractors and additional to the two, in addition to the 2,500 was somewhere in the 8,000 range. And the reality was that once we were there at Kabul airport starting to evacuate people, all of a sudden that number was 20,000. It's like, well, why, why weren't they just honest about how many people were on the ground? It, it would have changed everyone's perspective about what the task was ahead. And, uh, and, and, and I just, I, 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 I hold the government accountable for those deceptions. And so, uh, and, and now announcing that, you know, the forever wars are ending, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, we're fighting ferociously in West Africa and East Africa. We're still engaged in Yemen. We're still fighting ISIS in Iraq and Syria. I mean, so I, I, I just think that it, if the government were more truthful with the American people about where forces were deployed, about where we were fighting and what we were doing, uh, either they would be forced to, to uh, reconcile uh, this gigantic war, a worldwide war, uh, with the American people who I think are generally opposed to the continuation of these forever wars because they don't accomplish anything, or uh, people would be more engaged and more aware of what their own military was doing. And that really is the biggest problem that I identify in this book, which is that civilian literacy about the military is, uh, has really crumbled to almost zero, uh, partly as a result of the fact that we have a volunteer military, but also, I will say, partly as a result of the fact that secrecy shields so much of what the military actually does. Right. And you you kind of have a, a solution. You propose a solution in Chapter 10. You talk about having something like an index that would show and be able to kind of ascertain uh, and analyze what's going on with the national security state. Can you talk about that? Well, I propose a global security index that's sort of like a Dow Jones Industrial Average that actually tries to numerically measure uh, the security. And one of the reasons that I uh, thought about it originally was, uh, you know, we've been fighting in the Middle East now for 20 years since 9-11. And uh, I, I can't name one country that's, uh, that's safer or more secure today than it was 20 years ago. Uh, and, and the basket cases that we're fighting in, in Africa, uh, there's not one country where you can say they're on the road to a greater prosperity or even greater security. So the outcome separated from the activity, the activity and the outcome are never linked together. So really the reason to get out of Afghanistan, uh, despite what, whatever people's misgivings are about how we got out of Afghanistan is we're just not achieving anything. We're not achieving uh, uh, any greater security. It's not to say that there isn't a lot of work ahead for humanitarian organizations, for, for civil and human rights organizations, and even for those institutions of the government. But we lead with our military, and, uh, and there's nowhere that we can really look at and say this country is, uh, is a democracy, is, uh, is stable. Uh, you know, even in Iraq, the government doesn't uh, control all of the territory of Iraq. So 
you know, we just are not achieving our goals. And, and at some point you have to say to yourself, uh, you know, why are we continuing to make a bad investment? So the global security index concept was to basically say, well, let's look at a place like Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, wherever, and measure uh, on a day-to-day -day basis whether or not the events of the day are indicating that things are more uh, secure and more stable with greater security or not. And that if we actually had that bold measurement, uh, people would be aware that over 20 years, the Afghan security index has declined by however much percentage or that Yemen is, is in a negative spiral or, or, or Somalia is or whatever. I mean, if, it might even point to what kinds of U.S. actions and policies were successful. What would actually be um, uh, the, the right thing to do? Because all of a sudden the needle might start pointing upwards. And so it seems to me we have no measurement, no real methodical analysis of the security situation around the globe, not just for the United States, for other countries as well. And uh, that's what I propose. Yeah, and you and the, the other thing is that it would offer kind of transparency so the civilians could actually see that, would be more involved. I mean, it's part of the secrecy that you talk about is that we really don't know what's going on with the national security state. So, and you talked about how your even your involvement in kind of the nuclear arms race, the involvement of civilian experts help kind of uh, lead to kind of solutions, correct? Well, so, you know, I'm a product of that uh, civilian arms control world. Uh, and uh, the reality of nuclear weapons was that from day one, when the atomic bomb was uh, uh, created, that uh, the decision was made that civilians would be in, in control of nuclear weapons, not just the civilians at the Department of Energy, which we used to be the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, that uh, manufacture nuclear weapons and, and control the nuclear materials uh, so that the military doesn't have full possession of them. But uh, all the way to today, where uh, you know nuclear weapons are really uh, uh, segregated from the rest of the military and, and that they're under strict civilian control. Somehow, when it came to our era of conventional warfare, which I would date to the mid-1990s when we started fighting in the former Yugoslavia, uh, civilian control became more, more and more tentative, and the military became more and more dominant in terms of how to fight wars, what the wars were for, uh, ha, ha, and, 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 and then we saw the phenomenon where military men began began to be the most prevalent uh, civilian leaders. So, uh, you know, we've had more military men as secretaries of defense in the last decade uh, than in American history. Today, Lloyd Austin, retired Army General, under Trump, James Mattis, retired Marine Corps General, but Obama did it too. He had a general as his national security advisor he had an admiral as his director of national intelligence. Uh, I just don't believe that there aren't uh, qualified civilians to uh, take those civilian jobs, which is what the founding fathers intended, 
and and secondly, I really find it uh, corrosive uh, that the military runs the military, and uh, that sort of is against the entire strain of American culture and the and the organization of the government. Uh, but in a way, it, it's symptomatic of the fact that uh, the military kind of runs the military, and uh, and uh, the perpetual war is kind of you know a ba the background wallpaper of the world. And uh, and if the president doesn't uh, intend to do anything about that, uh, then the end result is going to always be that uh, that the military is seen as the national security experts and the national security establishment, which is, you know, people who go through the revolving door between government jobs and contractor jobs and then back to government jobs or the military people who retire and never leave Washington, D.C. and then become contractors and then become government people. So this revolving door and the nature of the national security establishment has essentially uh, created the situation we have today where uh, there's very little civilian uh, oversight and there's very little, there's not a cadre of civilians who are really experts in, uh, in, in uh, war. And uh, we need to build that cadre. We need to do it the way we built the arms control cadre in the in the Cold War, because that arms control cadre forced arms control on the U.S. government and really forced the U.S. government to reduce its number of nuclear weapons and had a strong impact on public understanding and education. And we don't, we just don't have that cadre today. And it's, uh, it's really a tragedy that we don't because even say, for instance, in the withdrawal from Afghanistan, though I think it's an important factor, virtually everyone who was commentating was a person who had served in Afghanistan and talked about how important it was to honor the service of those who had served in Afghanistan, how important it was for us not to bug out, not to leave the country, not to end the war, because this dishonored all those who had fought. And I, that's just one voice. That's just one opinion. Uh, yet we almost exclusively gave them the, uh, uh, the, the voice to, to say, here's the result of and the end of the Afghanistan war. It was sort of the entire commentariat of the country against uh, against the Biden administration. And we didn't have enough people who were standing up and saying, uh, look, we're not getting anywhere in Afghanistan. And, and, as, and as, as Joe Biden said, and I give him credit for it, he said, you know, we're never going to win this with the military. And if we don't withdraw now, when are we going to withdraw? And, uh, and I get it that the military is against that, but I don't think that it's the right answer. And I also lament that we don't have a civilian cadre, a strong right. a civilian uh, group that can really uh, explain this as well as the military people can. And I think that the the kind of nuclear anti-proliferation movement has been forgotten and people don't realize the success of how NGOs and individuals and civilians really change the arc of that, uh, the growth of the nuclear you know, nuclear weaponry. I think that something like that, like you said, applied today to this really kind of a, I think you even use the term in your book, like there's no proper dictionary definition of the state we're in. It's like perpetual conflict. 
and uh, and I think it's like perpetual war, but also self-perpetuating individuals who are, like you say, are rotating in this uh, same environment and continuing this on and on. So I think that some new, definitely some new thought, like you said, should definitely be involved in this whole system. And I mean, if people know the biggest slice of the pie of our budget is the military, 700 billion, 750 billion, like a huge amount of money is being uh, spent on these things where there's, I mean, I guess the contractors make money and the pe uh, people who make weapons make money. But like you said, what's the goal? What's the end? So, I mean, you, what, what do you think is other than having civilian involvement, what other solutions do you think uh, should be applied to solve the problem of perpetual war? Well, we need greater transparency about where we actually are in the world and where we are fighting. That's number one. People need to understand that we are in harm's way in many countries in the world. And then they need to ask the question, are we achieving anything in those operations? Second, we do need civilian literacy. We need people who can understand more the structure of government. I think we even saw that on January 6th during the insurrection, uh, that people didn't understand the difference between the army and the National Guard, that people didn't understand what the apparatus of, of decision-making was in Washington. People didn't understand what the U.S. Capitol Police were, or uh, they didn't understand uh, why a Capitol Hill was under the control of Congress and not a, under the executive branch or under the city of, uh, of the District of Columbia, which is not even a state. And so therefore it doesn't have the, the ability to operate on its own. Uh, all of these questions of the structure of government, of the structure of, uh, of the military, of, of it's just not taught in our schools anymore. It's not, uh, it, we're producing bad citizens. I mean, that's the end result. Uh, we, we have, we have a, a terrible civic life in America right now. Everybody laments the discord and the, and the, and the partisan bickering and the, and, and, and the, basically the deadlock in governance, uh, yet we don't do anything about it. And the first thing we could do about it would be to teach young people uh, the basics of government so that they understand these very institutions, that they even understand, if we go back to the election, how an election is, is, is cast, uh, and that there are 19,000 different just jurisdictions across the United States where votes are taken and counted and uh, and different uh, standards are used and that that decentralization is a powerful element uh, of, of the sanctity of our election systems uh, and people just don't understand it. And so therefore they believe that uh, there's some entity that can manipulate the vote or, or, that, or, or that the vote isn't valid. Uh, it's not the first time that this has happened. And, and, and I think it will just get worse in the future uh, if we don't become more engaged in, uh, the, in the governance of our own nation. And what, just to kind of do an epilogue to the interview, what do you think? We, you talked about Afghanistan. What's your position on uh, what's going to happen now? Supposedly the war's over. Do you think that this is just the foundation for another future conflict or how do you think it's going to play out? Well, I mean, it's very difficult to judge what the Taliban are actually going to do in Afghanistan. And we should remind the listener that, uh, that the Taliban are not what they were in 1994 when they began to take control of Afghanistan before 9-11. 
Uh, this is, uh, you know, this is almost three decades later. And, uh, you know, about half the population of Afghanistan is under the age of 15. So many of those boys who are fighting right now for the Taliban weren't even born before 9-11. And many of them uh, were just children. So this is all they've known is the Afghanistan of today. And that Afghanistan today has been focused on women's rights and greater equality. And, uh, and hopefully that will influence what the Taliban do in the future, that they won't be quite as doctrinaire and as draconian as they were in the 1990s. Uh, but the United States is going to try to influence that. And obviously the Biden administration is negotiating with the Taliban right now as we speak. Uh, for the privilege and the opportunity to continue to go after ISIS and Al-Qaeda, which have never been destroyed. Uh, and, and so the United States will continue to fight in Afghanistan with no boots on the ground, because that's the American way of war. And, uh, and I don't see that ending. I, I, I mean, Joe Biden even admits that that's what's happening. And, uh, and at the same time, the United States will continue to fight in Iraq and in, uh, in Syria uh, will continue to fight in Yemen, uh, and it will continue to fight in, in, in more than a dozen countries in Africa, a growing number of countries in Africa. So the infrastructure of war, the infrastructure of perpetual war will be maintained. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be moved to, quote, safer countries like Kuwait, Bahrain, uh, uh, the United Arab Emirates, and, and Qatar, uh, Oman, uh, uh, but at the same time, you know, people will will forget. They will and they will stop paying attention because uh, because it it appears that the war in Afghanistan is over. And when a drone strike occurs or an airstrike occurs, and there are no boots on the ground, uh, people tend not to pay very much attention. Uh, and so I guess the overall message of this book is that the American way of war has changed, that boots on the ground is no longer the measurement, uh, nor is it necessarily the fighting capacity of the American military, that no boots on the ground is also a possible mix. And that is in fact where the US military is more and more shifting in terms of fighting these kinds of con unconventional wars and counterterrorism. And, and, and people shouldn't forget that we're still out there uh, that we're still operating, uh, and and that uh, you know what unfolds in Afghanistan is is under some of our control, but the truth of the matter is, as this country descends into civil war again, and Taliban rule, uh, we will see really the emptiness of perpetual war, and that we have only achieved things in a temporary way, not transform the society, and we'll probably go back to where we were before 9/11. That's a great way to end it. Well, at the end of your, your book, you hope for more civilian involvement, more civic understanding in the country, and uh, less perpetual war. So I hope your uh, entreaty definitely comes true. Where's the best place for people to get your book, The Generals Have No Clothes? Well, it's in most bookstores, and, uh, and my publishers are always loath for me to name anybody because that's... Uh, uh, you know, that that's bad. Uh, it's available from Simon & Schuster. It's obviously available online. Uh, and my writing uh, can be followed in, uh, in Newsweek magazine. Uh, and my Twitter handle is at 
W-A-R-K-I-N, and that's generally where I post my interviews and articles and writings. And is there like an email or do you have a website? Uh, I do maintain a website that's a kind of a dead blog, <laughs> but you can go there to look at my bio and my list of writings. Uh, it's called uh, uh, Secrets No More. Um, and I have a project underway where I'm going to be starting working on a kind of a pay newsletter, as is everybody on right. the planet. And uh, so, uh, you know, between Newsweek and uh, following me on Twitter, you'll know what I'm up to. Awesome. And again, the author's name is William M. Arkin, A-R-K-I-N. And the title of the book just published April 2021 is The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. Thank you so much, Mr. Arkin. Thank you for having me on. I'll stay there. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.